turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, please. This morning we're going to consider the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. And we're just, we're going to be looking at just two verses in a short while. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. We'll come to them in a while. Let me just remind you, last week we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, prepared the way for him. We saw that to be the case in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. If you look at that verse there, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's voice, John the Baptist's voice, was the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness as he prepared the wilderness of men's hearts at the River Jordan and he did so as he preached to them a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. See that in chapter 3, verse 3. It's quite a mouthful, but it's it's very uh, important to look at every word in that mouthful and not ignore any part of it. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And as he preached the gospel to them as well, he preached the gospel of Christ who was soon to come. Baptism nowadays doesn't look ahead to the coming of Christ. As you can imagine, the people who were baptised by John the Baptist, they were looking ahead and John the Baptist was pointing them to the Christ who was still to come and who would come very soon. However, today, baptism looks back 2,000 years or so when Christ came into the world and it looks back (coughs) at his finished work of redeeming sinners to a holy and righteous God by his redeeming work, the shedding of his blood, a life of perfect obedience to God. And that's what is involved in baptism. I I really do hope that we we got a grasp last week of just how important baptism is. And it isn't just something we do, as if we're commanded to do it. And it's not something, it's, you know, you don't just tick the box, oh, well, I better get baptised now. Pauline and I, we saw something on the television the other day. Admittedly, it was a piece of fiction, but it was nevertheless highly relevant. Uh, a, 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 a woman was talking to her brother and uh, she said to him, aren't you, aren't you afraid? He was going to go back to Afghanistan for another tour of duty. Aren't you afraid to go back there? And he simply said to her, I'm fine. I was baptised the other week. If you understand what baptism's all about, he wasn't literally just saying that he he was Im, um, immersed in water, if if indeed he had the right understanding of baptism. There's a lot more to it than that. What he was saying was was pregnant with truth, a lot of truth there. By saying, if getting it right, if you say say it with the right understanding of baptism, to say I've been baptised. That means so much. That speaks of repentance. It speaks of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of fellowship with Jesus. 
and it speaks of being safe and secure in his hand, his mighty hand, now and forevermore. But baptism now, it's, it's for repentant sinners of all nations. John's baptism, it was primarily for the Jews uh, of his time. But now that's been broadened to people across the world, hasn't it? People who repent, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, 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 they're buried with Christ in baptism and they're clothed with Christ. And they come up out of the waters of baptism uh, as... In, with new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we come to the one whom John the Baptist prepared the way for, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall consider his baptism by John. But before we consider the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's consider Jesus. We've already seen in chapter 3 verse 4, Concerning John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, that was predicted in Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Isaiah, and that was about 700 years before John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you keep your finger in Luke chapter 4 and just turn back the pages of history, to Isaiah chapter 40, you're turning back from where John, from, from chapter 4, you're turning back about 700 years or so to Isaiah 40. <coughs> and we're going to do a comparison. We'll have a look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Look at that verse there. The words of Isaiah the prophet and in verse 3 we read The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There is some additional information in that prophecy of Isaiah that we don't actually see in Luke chapter 3 and verse 4. We'll have a look at that. Understand that the prophecy, as we read it in Isaiah chapter 40, it came from the, the, from the Hebrew. The Old Testament was, for the most part, written, or, or it came from the Hebrew language. And what we see in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it's a translation of the Hebrew. Okay. Whereas the New Testament is a translation of the Greek, the Greek New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, it's written, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that verse, which was originally written in Hebrews, look at the information that it gives to us. You'll see in Luke chapter 3 and verse 4 the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord Make his path straight Lord, God, capital letter and and small o-r-d And that comes from the Greek word kurios 
I'm not going to give you a lesson in Greek and Hebrew, don't worry about that. I'm the last one to give anybody a lesson in Greek and Hebrew. But you can understand the little bit that I will tell you. So Lord, with capital L and small O-R-D in Luke chapter 3 verse 4, it comes from the Greek word kurios. Now it can be a title given to God, but not necessarily always. It can also mean master, it can mean sir. In other words, Lord can be used as a title of honour for sinful men. And we see that with the House of Lords, don't we? The upper house in Parliament. Lords and ladies, it's a title to given, given to sinful people. So it doesn't always have to mean God. However, when we look at the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, we're left in no doubt that the one that John prepared the way for is God. It's not just some sir, some sinful sir or Lord like we have in our world. For one thing, if you're looking at um, if you're looking at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, it says very clearly at the end of that verse, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's one thing, a highway for our God. But also the word Lord in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 there, it's not just capital L and small O-R-D, is it? All the letters are uppercase. You can see that there. <clears throat> and that's because it is, a, it is a translation of the Hebrew name for God. It, in fact, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. It's his covenant name. So what I'm getting at is that if ever you were in any doubt whatsoever about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, just take a quick look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 and you can see that he is Jehovah God or Yahweh. Okay? And we know that, that, that what we read there in that old that prophecy of God in Isaiah 40 verse 3 is about Jesus because we're told as much in the New Testament in Luke chapter 3 and verse 4. No doubt about it. And there's more besides in the Old Testament that tells us that the promised Christ is God. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, for example, that is unarguably a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it starts off with the words, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Clearly, that's about the Christ who was to come into the world. But Isaiah goes on to say, and his name shall be called the mighty God. The mighty God. You've got it again there. Old Testament evidence, unequivocal evidence that Jesus is God. And in the New Testament, there are many, many references to the divinity of Christ. You need no look, you need look no further than the very first verse of Mark's Gospel. That's easy to find, isn't it? The first verse of Mark's Gospel, where it is written, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Or the very first verse of John's Gospel, where the Apostle refers to Jesus as the Word. Okay, 
So Jesus is the Word. But he, he declares the following. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So now we learn that the Word, whoever the Word is, was God. Drop down to verse 14 in John chapter 1 and you see precisely who the Word who was God is. It says in the 14th verse, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, who could that possibly be? Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. I'm labouring the point that the one who who came to John the Baptist for baptism is God manifest in the flesh because there are many people today and I'm including preachers as well who call themselves Christians but they deny the divinity of Christ. It's such a big thing. You wouldn't think it possible that someone could stand in a pulpit and deny the divinity of Christ but it's happening. And consequently, or partly due to that, there are many people who call themselves Christians, but in reality, they and their preachers are nothing more than heretics. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, carried away in his own body the sins of all who trust in him, he having become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have every reason to rejoice because his blood, the blood of God no less, didn't just cleanse you from the sins that you'd already committed up until the time that you first trusted in Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses you from all your sins. Past, present, that means... that. And future, that means the, the, the sins that you will commit even today. You have forgiveness. There is efficacy in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all your sins. Why? Because it is the blood of God, the incarnate Son of God. About three years before the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, flowed from his veins On that centre cross, he came to John to be baptised. And that is now what we shall consider. But keep in your mind, not just for this sermon, but forevermore, who Jesus is. He is God manifest in the flesh. Okay, let's have a look at uh, Luke. I'm telling you to keep your finger in Luke chapter 3, and I haven't. Luke chapter 3. And we'll look at verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptised, it came to pass that Jesus, also being baptised and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. When considering the nature of the baptism that Jesus underwent in the River Jordan, 
What some people, or probably many people say, and what can be ruled out straight away, is any thought that it was a baptism of repentance. Unlike everyone else who was baptised by John, and unlike any of us in here today, Jesus was without sin. And therefore, Jesus had nothing whatsoever to repent of. So we can rule that out. That Jesus underwent a baptism as a repentant sinner. Possibly even more, uh, you'll hear this even more, for, I'm sure you will hear this even more from Christians, that Jesus was baptised in obedience to the law. Maybe you've heard that and maybe you subscribe to that yourselves, that Jesus was baptised in obedience to the law. After all, when Jesus was born of a woman, he was born under the law, which means that when the Son of God came into the world and became flesh, he subjected himself to the law and he became obedient to the law, even unto the death of the cross, on behalf of those he came to save. It was all part of his work of fulfilling the demands of the law. Yeah? And that is why Jesus was baptised. However, Jesus did not submit to John's baptism in obedience to any law. Whether whether we're talking about John's baptism of old or baptism now, it ought not to be thought of as law. It ought to uh, some kind of law that really we all have a duty to comply with. Although we all fail, and so Jesus, he kept that law on our behalf. It wasn't compliance with law. Rather, baptism is a gift. It's a gift to the church. I hope I, I laboured that point last week. You, you don't think of baptism as law. Think of it as gospel. Think of it as God imparting his grace to you as a Christian. Think of it as a time of heightened fellowship with your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't do justice to baptism if you think of it as obedience to some law. It's the grace of God which is to be ministered Not to everyone, but to repentant sinners, not as some legal requirement, but rather as a means of building faith in the Lord's people. Baptism is to be gladly received by repentant sinners. Matthew's account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ provides more information that Luke has not recorded, information that will shed some light on why it was that Jesus was baptised. You don't have to turn to it. I've got it written here, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. It is written, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, unto John, to be baptised of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me. John was right there. Jesus had no need to be baptised. John, 
although you think it's crazy, who is John to forbid the Son of God from being baptised? I get it. I get it. He was saying, you have no... Boy, this is exactly what he said. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee. Why comest thou to me? In other words, you don't need to be baptised. No need. There's no law to be kept there or to be fulfilled there. Clearly, John held Jesus in very high regard. We can say that. Very high regard indeed, especially when you consider that he did not hold back from reproving King Herod and calling out King Herod's sin, didn't he? He was put into prison for that and he lost his head. He was, he was beheaded because he dared to confront King Herod about his sin. He didn't shy away from calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a generation of vipers in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. But when it came to Jesus, look what John said about him to the people in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. Look what he said. I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Can you see the difference there? The regard that John the Baptist had for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you, when you contrast that with the way he reproved King Herod and those religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees with all their right, their self-righteousness. If John had no thought of Jesus being the sinless son of God, he would have been dishonouring his high office of prophets. He would have been dishonouring his high office that God had given to him, had called him to, by saying, I uh, I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Well, I would say that a, a prophet of God is someone who is worthy of respect. He is God's mouthpiece. He speaks for Almighty God. And yet that prophet of God didn't consider himself even worthy to stoop down and loosen the shoes of Jesus. John knew something. He knew who Jesus was. The sinless Son of God. Even though John did not see fit to baptise Jesus, Jesus overruled him. And in Matthew chapter 3 verse 15, Jesus said to him, Suffer it now, sorry, suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he suffered him. I'll read that again. Matthew 3 verse 15. Jesus said to John, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he suffered him. He suffered him. Ordinarily, fulfilling righteousness, what does that what, what does that conjure up in your mind normally? Fulfilling righteousness would normally have something to do with Jesus fulfilling the law. But as can be seen, John was included in that fulfilling of righteousness. Jesus said, for thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Where us 
is a reference not only to the one who was going to be baptised, it was a reference to the one who was going to be doing the baptising, John. Besides which, as has already been established, Jesus was baptised not as an act of obedience to him, by him rather, to any law. Whatever it was here, this fulfilling of righteousness, he included John in it. It begins to make sense when you consider what John Calvin said about baptism, which he called a sacrament. I would say very rightly so. He called it a sacrament or a means of grace. That's what sacrament means. Calvin said, a sacrament then is not a dumb ceremony exhibiting some unmeaning pomp without doctrine, but the word of God is joined to it and gives life to the outward ceremony. You understand that if you realise that the word of God is living and active. The word of God is not dead. And by joining the word of God to baptism, it gives that, it gives it life. With that in mind, it can be seen that after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrament of baptism was given life and efficacy from that time onwards when the head of the church, no less, the Lord Jesus Christ, he said to his disciples, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. If you want to know how to make disciples of people, Baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. As for John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, that was far from lifeless. It was far from being without efficacy, even though it was ministered to people before the cross work of Jesus and before his resurrection. The word of God was most certainly joined to it, attached to that baptism, as as can be seen when Jesus instructed John to baptise him. If ever there was an example of the word of God being joined to uh, to baptism, you see it there with Jesus himself being baptised by John, thereby joining himself to baptism. So it's not some kind of pomp, as Calvin called it, pomp without doctrine. As such, John's baptism was in every sense a Christian baptism, made effectual by Jesus for all who were baptised by John as repentant sinners, looking for forgiveness through faith in the Christ who was still to come, the promised Messiah. Also, the baptism of Jesus by John marked the beginning of Jesus assuming his public ministry as mediator for all who would trust in him, including every single person who was baptised by John as a, as, a, as a repentant sinner, trusting in the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Their baptism wasn't in vain. It wasn't just some outward pomp without doctrine, remember Jesus attached himself to John's baptism. And it was effectual for all who came to John, all 
who repented. When John called on them to repent, all who who believed in the Christ who was to come. And we saw last week, John, he preached the gospel of, of Christ. We saw that very clearly last week. So John's baptism was in every sense a Christian baptism. Also, the baptism of Jesus by John marked the beginning of his public ministry. And that takes us to our final consideration. Jesus was anointed for his work of redemption at his baptism. Look again at verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptised, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptised and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. What Jesus prayed at his baptism, we're not told, but presumably it had something to do with what was about to happen, his baptism. Since the baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of his public ministry, he no doubt committed that great work to his Father. Jesus committed everything to his Father in heaven. Before appointing, ordaining his apostles, he was up all night in prayer. And his Father, when Jesus prayed at his baptism, his Father responded approvingly, when a voice from heaven said, Thou art my son, in thee I am well pleased. Also we read that the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Jesus. When all of that happened, prophecy was being fulfilled. We saw it earlier in my first reading, Isaiah chapter 61 and in verse 1 it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord have anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He have sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That doesn't mean being in the local um, prison, the government prison here on the island in Jerby. It means being held captive to sin and Satan. Jesus sets the captives free. And Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 is about Jesus and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has been anointed and appointed to preach the gospel. The descent of the Holy Ghost upon Jesus as he was anointed for his redemptive work was seen by John the Baptist it was seen by him and that would have been confirmed to John it would have confirmed to him rather that the one whose shoes he felt unworthy to loosen is the son of God I'd say it's clear that John more than entertained the idea that Jesus was the son of God anyway by virtue of the fact that he 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 preached, he said what he said there, the one that I, um, who comes after me is, I'm, is, I'm not worthy to loosen his shoes. But 
it was confirmed to him at the baptism that Jesus is the Son of God. Just turn to John chapter 1 and we'll see that. John chapter 1. Look very carefully at these verses. I'm going to read to you verses 32 to 34. And John, this is John the Baptist, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptise with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptiseth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Reading John alongside Luke, what can be seen in Luke chapter 3 verse 22 is the triune God, God the Father, uh, speaking from heaven. God the Holy Spirit descending upon the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there in those two verses, verse 22 and 23 of Luke chapter 3. And that Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, understood that. After all, in John chapter 1, verse 32, he testified that he saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. Also in verse 34, he testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, presumably, John heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. As has been said before, John the Baptist had a clear understanding of the triunity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Uh, The Old Testament prophets... You, you, you can't imagine that they didn't understand who God was who appointed them and who called them to be prophets of God. And people who were gloriously, wonderfully saved before the Lord Jesus Christ completed his work at redemption, of redemption at the cross, they had some idea. Perhaps they didn't have a clarity that we have now but they certainly don't think that they understood nothing. Job in the Old Testament, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. My kinsman Redeemer. When he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, he was referring to a man. And he shall stand upon the earth in the latter day, and I shall see God with my own eyes, shall I see him. He's referring to his Redeemer, his Saviour as both man and God and saying that he shall see God with his own eyes. Job, an Old Testament believer. And Abraham, the father of the faithful, Abraham, we needn't imagine that he had a less than perfect understanding of who God is. Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. John the Baptist, 
He knew his God, the God who had called him to be a prophet. Father, Son and Holy Ghost. And that understanding he would have conveyed to the people who heard his gospel preaching when they came to him for baptism as repentant sinners. As we close, let's consider the descent of God the Holy Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. The incarnate Son of God made himself of no reputation when he came into the world to do his Father's will and he took upon himself the form of a lowly servant. It was at his baptism that he assumed his public ministry and he was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do that mighty mighty work that God had sent him to do. Consequently, just as his forerunner, John the Baptist, had called on people to repent and he also preached glad tidings of good things unto them, so too did Jesus. Jesus did precisely the same thing. As it's written in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And now all these years later, the message is exactly the same. It's a message of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the gospel. Calling on people to repent and trust in Jesus and be baptised, as we've seen. Therefore, repent, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins at the cross with his own precious blood, the blood of God no less. And in light of the clear teaching of the scriptures, be baptised. Amen.